Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organizing to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns, or an organization driving change in your community, Dunn Street develops organizing strategies to overcome challenges and connect people that share the same values and organize them to achieve those common goals from the ground up. To find out how Dunn Street can partner with you, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. And today's episode is actually a special episode and it is presented in conjunction with the Australian-Israel Labor Dialogue. The Australian-Israel Labor Dialogue promotes a constructive dialogue between the labor movements here in Australia and over in the Holy Land. Uh, The AILD works on building links between unions in Israel and Australia, between Rainbow Labor here in Australia and the LGBTQI activists in the Israel Labor Party and between Australian Young Labor and the Young Guard of the Israeli Labor Party. If you want to find out more about the Australian-Israel Labor Dialogue, you can visit them at AILD.org.au. And on today's episode, we're joined by Richard Angel, who is the former Director of Progress, which is an organisation of... UK Labor Party members, which aims to promote a radical and progressive uh, political agenda for the 21st century. Uh, Richard came on today's show to discuss the crisis that is crippling the Labor Party over in Britain at the moment, and that is the rise of anti-Semitism within the party ranks, the handling of anti-Semitic cases against Jewish Labor members, and the response from the leadership dating back to 2015. Um, and I've also included a bunch of articles that are linked into the uh, podcast summary that you can click on just to read a bit more about it. If you didn't know this was going on, um, it's been a problem that's dated back to essentially since Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labor Party. Um, and you should check that out. So it's an interesting podcast that, uh, that we did with uh, Richard, got him on the phone from uh, London. Uh, also, special thanks to uh, Annika Wells and to Josh Burns. I was up in Canberra uh, on Monday to see their first speech being made in the Parliament. Um, it was We've obviously had both uh, Josh and Annika on the podcast. Um, and I'd like to thank them uh, and their um, staff in their offices for looking after us uh, and going up there and seeing their speech and meeting their families. It was a great uh, a day and two wonderful speeches by two wonderful uh, young Labor parliamentarians who have great uh, futures ahead of them. So it was a great day um, had by everyone and um, thanks to both Annika and Josh for uh, allowing Dunstreet to be a part of their uh, special day where they get to make their first speech in our nation's parliament. Don't forget the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. So if you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, please leave a rating and a review. Um, And if you listen to it on Spotify or whatever your favourite podcast app is, please uh, make sure you follow us and help with the ratings. Uh, And for all of your podcast updates, don't forget to follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Now let's get to today's episode. So we're taping this one on a wet Tuesday night in Melbourne and we're joined on the line from London with the former Director of Progress and a UK Labor comrade that knows our political shores all too well. Richard Angel, welcome to Socially Democratic. 
Thank you very much for having on. And it is wonderful and sunny. It's almost like a beautiful Sydney day here in London. <laughs> well, the tables have turned then uh, because <laughs> it's, uh, it is miserable here in Melbourne uh, this evening. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. Um, you, uh, we, when we spoke earlier in the week to tee up this podcast, um, you and I actually went into a bit of a deep dive conversation about the Australian election. Obviously, you've been over here in Australia. You've worked for the New South Wales, sorry, the New South Wales Labor Party branch um, a couple of years back. I'm just keen to actually get your thoughts on uh, uh, the uh, the recent debacle that was the Australian federal election and what it looked like from a distance. Yeah, so I worked on the federal election in 2013 and then I was back in January this year working on the uh, New South Wales state campaign and then uh, went over to the federal campaign. Um, and so... Yeah, <laughs> so you're 0 from 3. Many, three. Three losses out of three um, uh, in my time there. I mean, the, the thing I'd say is the bit I love about your political system is the compulsory voting element, how easy it is for, to vote and uh, just how as a political strategist and somebody who's involved in campaigns, you know, often the way we win seats and campaigns here is you need to identify voters that you need to discourage from voting against you or from somehow not being motivated to vote for your um, opponent. And of course, that is just not part of the conversation when you're in Australia. And that is a really welcome um, thing. And I absolutely love it as an important part of your political system that there are, whether it's uh, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, those, whether they're people of colour or with very poor uh, English as a first language, are just automatically invited into your politics. And we as political parties have to find a way of contacting and communicating with those because we know at the end of the day they've got to turn up. Whereas here, they are all much less likely to turn up. And um, uh, and so you know, that calibrates the campaign in a very different um, way. So uh, that, that's an amazing thing that I advocate about your political system here whenever I am given the opportunity. I suppose my reflection on the um, federal campaign in particular is that, you know, I think that the campaign did particularly well in 2016, largely because Labour wasn't a massive player in the campaign. It was all about which Malcolm Turnbull would become prime minister and the public clipped his uh, wings three years later it was very much a referendum on will Bill Shorten become your prime minister? And the reality was he hadn't changed his numbers with the public and how he was viewed. And he therefore was a, um, a leap of faith candidate um, that people weren't necessarily prepared to take the leap of faith with. And then we had leap of faith policies. Um, and uh, just because we had one positive tax policy three years ago when we did particularly well um, against the odds didn't mean that people were, this was, there was a new era of people loving taxes. And, you know, that's a very hard message in the Labour Party. And, uh, but that, that is the reality of, of where we were. So it's all well-intentioned, lots of Ed Miliband type, we must tackle inequality as if some of us aren't in favour of doing that. But we currently have no prospect of tackling inequality with a Liberal government because they aren't interested in this one iota. And so our kind of perfect plan sits gathering dusts on the, um, on the shelves. And, um, uh, and, you know, the country will become more unequal uh, because we don't get to implement any of our plans, uh, let alone a kind of perfect one. So uh, 
But this is the situation world over, and social democrats are dealing with this in lots of places. And we've got ourselves to a, an odd position where we become highly emotional about policy and highly rational about politics when the voters are the other way around. So many people will all meet in the Labour Party. I'll resign the Labour Party if it doesn't have this policy. I won't be part of it. I can't campaign for it if. And we get very, very obsessed about a particular policy issue that if the party isn't supporting, we're not campaigning for it or part of it in some way. And then when it comes to election day, we produce these little booklets that say, well, if you compare us on our fiscal studies policy or our um, or our cars policy or our this policy or that policy, clearly we're better than Liberals. Why don't the voters go for this every time? And actually, they're the opposite in which they kind of can give or take some of our policies, but they get very emotional about our politics and how we present our politics. And it seems that those who join a political party and those who vote for political parties now behave in totally uh, opposite ways. And we as Social Democrats have got to find a way to calibrate that because otherwise the right owns emotion and we have rational uh, approach to these things, but we keep losing. And that's something we need to change. You, uh, you've just covered a whole bunch of things there that I'd like to uh, <laughs> break down and unpack. But uh, one thing that I... Um, I did have John McTiernan on a couple of weeks back. And it was... Great just, guy. Absolutely. And it was just after the European parliamentary elections. And I did discuss with him about the Social Democratic Project and where it is right now and he was quite depressed about it all um one thing that he always prided in obviously he too has spent uh time here campaigning for the australian labor party he always mm. felt that the australian labor party that was in, in how it was different it set itself apart from other social democratic parties was there was very much an attitude by our apparatchiks or the party leadership um so that could be our leading politicians it could be our leading campaigners and all of our different state branches and national secretariat that, that had very much a winning mentality just very pragmatic approach to politics in that this is what we need to do to get into government because we can only bring about progressive change or changes to improve our communities by governing um, it sounds like you're starting to suggest that that's not the case in australian politics now either well, I, th I think I think that is, and I still think that is an overwhelming part of it. And one of one of the things that I've always liked, um, well, one of the only thing I think I really like about the factional system in Australia is that both factions are pro Labour winning, and that's a really important um, uh, a really important thing because here the debate is between principle versus power, where the left believes it kind of owns principle, and the Social Democrats. Um, believe they kind of own power and of course that's a false dichotomy um, there's no point having principles if you don't have power and there's no point having power if you don't have any principles and we all are an amalgamation of those two things the thing for me who's somebody on that winning is a, a positive outcome itself is not because it's we don't want the government cars or the offices but it's that in a day we can do more in office than we can do in a whole political career outside of it and it's that I think that I think the problem and the challenges that we have got and where this kind of rubbed up against each other is that we are so exacerbated by how, uh, for want of a better word, neoliberalism has uh, has strained inequality in our society and that things like the global crash that happened, how, whether it was Australia that did very well through it or 
other places in the world that haven't, it seems to have exacerbated the pre-crash inequality problems rather than have, uh, you know, we haven't done some learn the right lessons. So we're all, those who, who know about these things are more uh, motivated to make the changes we need to, but we're so poor at bringing people with us in that process. So we know what needs to be done, but because we're so angry about the status quo, we don't stop to take people on the journey and pick them up where they are waiting at the bus stop rather than actually kind of see them three or four stops down the line. So I don't think it's that you've lost the winning um, uh, and pragmatic part of um, ALP politics that it has, I think John's right to identify that is a trait. I think we've all just got to this point where um, we're angry about the status quo and need to stop again and remember that there is no point going on a journey if there's nobody in the bus. Um, and, and that, I think, is uh, a point. But and also, you know, when leadership is a big factor, those things become very difficult because rightly and understandably, people in the party had a strong affection for Bill and you know, he, he'd done right by the party over many years, etc. But that when we were going in those focus routes, people were pretty rude about him, is the truth. Mm. And that just meant there were certain things that you weren't going to be able to overcome with, you know, what photos you put on your leaflet and what font you published your policies in. I uh, just got back from Canberra this morning. I went up on a Sunday afternoon for uh, um, to see a couple of uh, colleagues make their first speeches to the Parliament, Annika Wells and uh, Josh uh, Burns, two friends of the of the podcast. And it's the first time I've, I've been outside uh, Victoria f- uh, since the election and talking to... Actually, that's no, not true. I was up in Queensland a couple of weeks ago, but it's the first time I've been out of Victoria for, you know, a couple of nights and meeting up with being in the, the nation's uh, parliament, meeting with a whole bunch of Labor Party operatives from across uh, all of our states and territories and now getting a, a different perspective on the election outcome than from... a very Victorian-centric view of how or the reasons why uh, we lost. And two things struck me. One was people, more people I spoke to who were, weren't Victorians were blaming Bill for the loss. Uh, and the second one was that certainly from people that I was speaking to from Queensland, when I would share a view or an opinion about something, they would say, oh, that's a very Victorian-centric attitude. And I've always felt that, yes, our country is, that there is a diversity of views, but not as diverse as, say, um, it is in, in, in Britain or it is in the United States. I've always felt there is a sort of a homogeneity to our voting or to the voting population of the people that we need to shift in those target seats to win government. I think there's always... I've always felt there's been a lot of similarities between people who live in the, in a, in the eastern suburbs of uh, Melbourne with the western suburbs of Sydney and the, you know, the sort of regional centres of, of, uh, of Queensland. Yes, but Stephen, I... I think it's fair to say that um, some in Victorian Labour have believed their own spin and partly because um, uh, Dan is doing so well as Premier and got re-elected uh, with such a convincing majority, the, 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 the chat that Victoria is somehow more left-wing than all the rest of the country um, got turbocharged and I fear and think that people started to believe it and it turns out quite frankly that isn't true mm. um and you know, that that was lots of the you know when we were sitting in awkward and difficult focus groups where people were communicating that their problems with the leader which meant they were 
in many ways unable to look beyond that. Although when we did get on them onto policy, it did for them look like we were taxing their small business, their home and their superannuation, which was problematic. Um, but we come out of those things going, oh, well, don't worry, Victoria will pull it off, basically. Yeah. And so and, and, and there were many in Victorian Labour that had wanted that to be the kind of uh, the narrative and um, had believed that that was true. And, um, you know, everyone in Victoria hates the Liberals. And it turns out that's not true. And, um, and so I, th- I think we've all, just got to, we've all just got to recalibrate again and just kind of go out and start a conversation with the voters from where they are rather than where we'd like them to be or we'd like ourselves to be in relation to where they are. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I wasn't. This is the the 2019 campaign's the first uh, federal or state campaign that I have not been involved in uh, in quite some mm-hmm. time. So it's it was interesting for me to see it from an outsider's perspective. Um, but I, I did worry. And I, look, I, I've never I haven't spoken to uh, party officials in the Victorian branch, my former work colleagues, um, properly since the since the election result. Um, but certainly, if I was still working in, uh, in in head office in Victoria, I would never have gone into that election campaign thinking that seats like Kyong or Higgins were going to were going to fall into the Labor pile at this particular election. Uh, nor did we think that we were going to win seats out in the, you know, the the wealthy liberal eastern suburbs at the most recent 2018 state election either. Uh, I think that was just money for jam for us, really. But it was never sort of on our radar that we would pick those seats up. Um, and comparing, you know, a Daniel Andrews re-election campaign to a Bill Shorten seeking election campaign are, you know, are two fundamentally different um, things. Very much are. And I would say, like, the people I worked with in Australia from all the different branches and different states, of which I know people from different, are just the most phenomenally talented group of people. And I think, you know, you are very, very lucky that as a political party you attract really talented, really good, uh, often really young people who want to make a difference to the world. And that is, you know, I just I just have been so lucky on the both occasions that I've worked there to work with just, you know, really remarkable um, uh, people. And obviously with uh, Kayla Minane in New South Wales, really remarkable women um, and many coming up behind her. So, you know, that, that, that spirit that uh, John was talking about lives in that kind of culture that's in the party um, that people, whatever kind of factional route they come through, you attract some pretty high caliber um, people. And that is, that is a sign that the party's got a lot of hope for the future. Let's talk about culture in political parties, in particular, the culture that is going on uh, in your political party in Britain at the moment. Um, when I was listening to Josh Burns give his um, first speech yesterday afternoon, he spoke about his grandparents, both who were survivors of the Holocaust and how they came to Australia to begin a new life, as so many refugees out of the war did. And he spoke of the influence that his grandparents in particular had on his own political socialisation and, and sort of developed the values that he has as the next generation of Labour politicians. And when John, sorry, when Josh was giving that speech, he drew upon his own Jewish ancestry and and part of the narrative of his first speech was how he wants to focus on the need to defend our, our democracy and our democratic institutions and the multicultural fabric that makes up Australia against attacks from the far right and from all forms of racism. And when he was talking about that, I couldn't help but wonder that if Josh's grandparents had decided to relocate to London 
after the war and not Melbourne, um, how would Josh feel being in a 2019 version of the Labor Party in Britain at this point in time? And I guess that's partly what we really want to talk about today is what is going on with the Labor Party in terms of its problem with anti-Semitism, which has kicked up in the media again just recently with a, um, a, a story in Panorama, which is sort of the equivalent of Four Corners in the UK. Um, and I just wanted to pick your brain about that, because how do we find ourselves with a mainstream European centre-left political party embroiled in a crisis of, of its soul, uh, in which rank-and-file members of the party and indeed Labor Party uh, par- members of parliament have been subjected to racial vilification on the basis of the fact that they're Jewish uh, where, what are the seeds of this anti-Semitism that has been sown in, in the party? and Where did it first kick off? So let's take that bit first. So there has long been anti-Semitism on the left. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, it's not polluted all of the left politics, but there are strains of it uh, that have run through a long history. You know, anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred. The nature and form that anti-Semitism takes is the way it morphs and evolves, you know, Jewish people have been claimed to be responsible for whether it's uh, killing Jesus uh, in its form that went on to be founding capitalism to founding communism, uh, controlling the media, financial uh, resource of the world, etc. It doesn't matter what has uh, answered have come at Jewish people from every angle. And of course, that was encapsulated in the turn of the century uh, false document put together by um, the, the, the Russians of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion that talked about uh, and, and purported to be this minutes of this meeting of a controlling Jewish um, uh, elite. Um, and of course, in uh, 1910, it was uh, debunked by the Times of London and shown to be the fabrication it was. But nevertheless, it has continued uh, to this day to be the bedrock of, um, uh, of, of antisemitism and that has uh, persisted uh, until uh, until where we are now. And what you see, the strains of that coming through on the left are, I think, in three forms. Firstly, the kind of conspiratorial anti-capitalism that often becomes anti-Semitism, uh, whether it's the Jewish people supposedly controlling finance or the media or the uh, top tier of power. Those who go in for an anti-capitalist approach to politics don't always, but are often followed by uh, a conspiratorial anti-Semitism that comes in behind that. And so when you hear the left railing against elites and bankers and uh, media owners, uh, you know that for at least some of their audience, they're replacing those terms with Jew, and that is problematic. And of course, because of austerity here in Britain and the massive um, cuts that have been made uh, by the coalition uh, government and then the Conservatives on their own have met, have kind of turbocharged that politics and brought it to the fore. Uh, austerity is a very real and genuine concern for people that they should be concerned by. But when that is mixed in with that conspiratorial anti-capitalism, you've got that, 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 that taking place. So that's one. The second is an anti-imperialism that broadly sees the world as the uh, bad guys, America, Britain and Israel, uh, the West generally, and then the good guys being somehow the kind of political East or those that are standing up to uh, America, Britain, uh, Israel and, and the like. And that, of course, is at a premium 
uh, in the UK. One, because the, the, the massive hangover from the Iraq war uh, continues and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's form of politics, you know, he was the head of the Stop the War Coalition, which is often known as the Stop the West Coalition. And uh, one of their supporters once uh, by accident said that on a radio programme, which was very informative. <laughs> and that worldview uh, means that you know, Jeremy Corbyn can do events where he calls uh, people from Hamas, our friends, etc. And this is uh, uh, has sitting underneath it then a kind of pro-Palestinian movement, which is a very good and important cause that I support, of course. Um, but the, in the small meetings where some of those um, strategy or, um, uh, or, or political conversations happen, people strain to anti-Semitism and it is never policed. So rarely in those uh, discussions does somebody say something and Smithy and somebody goes, whoa, 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 that's too far. We disagree with Israel because of its settlement policy or this, that or the other, the nation state law, etc. But we're not like, you know, Netanyahu might be a successful and uh, pretty influential global leader, but he is not a controlling influence on the world, manipulating an American president. Right. And no, nobody has policed those boundaries in anti-imperialism for a long time. And of course, Jeremy Corbyn is the ultimate anti-imperialist leader. And then I think finally, you've got a kind of woke identity politics that's not about achieving equality for all, which of course we, all of us in the Labour Party believe in, I've already spoken about, but is about a one-upmanship internally. My oppression is worse than your oppression. And there's this horrid meme that goes around the uh, bits of the internet that says racism equals prejudice plus power. And broadly that is saying the victims of racism are black, poor and weak. And for many, they see the Jewish community as white, rich and powerful. So what happened in Pittsburgh, where people somebody went into a synagogue uh, and a shooting, a number of people uh, died, that was bad. It was prejudice. It was clearly wrong. But was it racism? Is it racism in the same way that Muslim people are experiencing Islamophobia, the systemic and economic problems that black communities or Aboriginal communities might have? Some people are able to explain away anti-Semitism as a different form um, of racism and, quite frankly, as not really a racism, but a different kind of prejudice altogether. And what you've seen in the Labour Party here is those three strains come together like a perfect plat. And quite frankly, it's quite strong. And that is a view that is held uh, throughout the, uh, the power structure of the Labour Party now. And so you now see a culture in the Labour Party where to accuse someone of anti-Semitism is worse than being anti-Semitic. Has this culture essentially crystallised under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn? Did this, was these, okay, you've mentioned that these views have existed within the left for quite some time. Um, but certainly, you know, when I was in uh, Manchester in 2000 and for your party conference, I'm testing what year it was, I feel like it was 2010 or maybe it was 2012. Um, Ed Mil- it was the year that Ed Miliband bet his brother for the leadership. What year was that? 2010. 2010. I went to a Labour Friends when it, of Israel. When it all went wrong. Yeah, I went to a Labour Friends of Israel event, which was packed. And had sort of spent a lot of time as just an Australian delegate at the conference meeting hundreds of different people from all different parts of the party. And I never got any sort of sense of, not that I was asking people about their views on Israel, but I just, I just never got a sense that this, was a, this could be an issue. Has this manifested under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn? Has he given people an opportunity to, to actually feel a bit more free to express some of these views? Undoubtedly so. The, 
you know, Jeremy Corbyn himself has done some things that are questionable, writing a foreword for a book that had in its uh, one of its central chapters the idea that Jews were essentially controlling the financial system uh, that we're in, you know, defending a mural that had a picture of hook-nosed Jewish bankers playing uh, Monopoly on the backs of the poor and Palestinians. Uh, and when the local council tried to get it painted over, um, Jeremy Corbyn on a Facebook post said, why this... Why would you do that to this and, and, and defend this mural? You know, he stood up at an event and talked about British Jews not understanding British irony um, and, uh, and many of, of these things. So there are, there, are people where, there are things where people point to Jeremy Corbyn's direct behaviour and saying these things are questionable um, for people at any level of the Labour Party. And it's particularly worrying when they're said by somebody who is now, didn't say them in a leadership position, but is now in a leadership position. But what you then have is then a kind of factionalism in the party that suggests that this is only being brought up because Jeremy Corbyn is the leader that believes that um, the, the incidents are fabricated or made up or uh, done to uh, uh, attack him and therefore are going totally dismissed. But, you know, the incidents we're really talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about our Jewish MPs being hounded by people who purport themselves to be uh, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn on an almost daily uh, basis. His outrage in the media mocking uh, Jewish women MPs when they talk about their experiences and how that uh, uh, reaches back to uh, what their parents told them about being survivors of the Holocaust. You know, we had a local Labour Party up in Merseyside who, when a local member went along to recommend the Jewish Labour movement's training on anti-Semitism, somebody stood up in the meeting and said, we don't want that here the Jewish labour movement, aren't they funded by Israel and ISIS? And somebody thought, not only did they then vote to not invite the Jewish labour movement, somebody else thought to minute that comment about Israel and ISIS, and somebody then, a third person, then emailed that round all the local party as a true and accurate record of the meeting. And nothing has been done about that local party. Um, they're now currently, they're basically hounded out their incumbent MP. They're currently selecting um, a new member of parliament, and they've recently just passed a motion um, attacking uh, various people involved in the Panorama programme that you uh, uh, just uh, just mentioned earlier. You know, that is all coming from one local party. That is pretty systematic, and nothing is being done by the leadership to call that into question, to challenge that behaviour, and that is very worrying for people. You know, we had not just one, but two councillors uh, or council candidates at our last round of elections that had said open Holocaust denial, where complaints had gone into the party, both of them, multiple complaints had been ignored. And it wasn't until that case was in the press that the party acted on it because essentially it became too important for them not to. But even when they had done that, one of Jeremy Corbyn's closest um, uh, supporters uh, who's on the National Election Committee, that he voted to become head of the disputes panel, that is a director of Momentum, the uh, hard-left pressure group uh, supporting Jeremy Corbyn here in the British Labour Party. You know, she went to defend this person and said, oh, it's all a fabricated attack by right-wing apparatchiks in the party. And when it was revealed that actually, you know, this is somebody who's talking about questioning the numbers of people who died in the Holocaust, whether it really happened, uh, calling David Miliband a Rothschild Zionist, you know, Finally, she actually had to resign her position, but only after serious pressure was uh, enacted. So you've got this happening throughout the party. 
And what you saw in the panorama program that you mentioned, your our version of kind of four corners, as you said, is young people who have worked for the party in the complaint department. I think we've had eight now come out as whistleblowers talking about the kind of pressure the party was putting on them to not uh, take action on Anselm cases when they were coming over their desk in the disputes department of the Labour Party. So, uh, and we've now got the Commission for um, Equality and Human Rights founded by a Labour government investigating the Labour Party for institutional anti-Semitism. And the Labour Party's approach is to uh, one of our NEC members has called for the commission to be abolished. Um, and you've seen people attack the programme, the whistleblowers, uh, and some of them using the official Twitter account of the Labour Party. And, you know, it's a really saddening position to find ourselves in. The um, panorama, there's a whole bunch of things that you just mentioned through us. I want to sort of go through them one by one. Before we talk about the panorama programme and the impact that that's had, because that's something that's just recently happened, when uh, these complaints started to develop, part of the issue, on, on top of the issue of anti-Semitism within the party, was the way that the party began to actually try and handle um, or the response to this rise in anti-Semitism within the rank and file of the party. And one of the very first things they did was, uh, the initial response was to appoint um, a barrister and a human rights uh, campaigner, and I'm going to completely destroy this poor woman's name, uh, Shami Chakrabarti. Chakrabarti. Yeah. Shami Chakrabarti. Uh, to examine the extent of anti-Semitism um, in, within the party. But even the handing down of her report was marred in controversy. Do you want to just sort of go through a bit of, first of all, what, what, was, what was the findings within her report and then what was the actual controversy about the handing down of that report? So the former mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, had gone on the radio to say in um, various forms of words that Hitler had supported Zionism, which was obviously an egregious thing to say. And um, he pointed to some particular document where uh, very early the Nazi government had tried to get Jews out of uh, Germany by doing uh, some kind of deal with one of the um, Zionist groups in Israel, as if that was somehow... Uh, proof that Hitler was actually just a secret Zionist uh, and somehow misplaced uh, in his later work, Brilliant. and uh, which was obviously just an egregious thing to do. He refused to apologise for this, bedded down. Corbyn refused to suspend him, uh, etc. And eventually the pressure was so overwhelming that he both got suspended and um, Baroness Chakrabarti was appointed. She was not a Baroness at this point, however. She'd just finished being the director of a thing called Liberty, which is the out... Uh, uh, very kind of um, outsidery campaigning uh, human rights group here in the UK that uh, def defend brilliantly all of the most controversial and difficult uh, cases where human rights comes up against uh, the kind of uh, the sometimes authoritarian wishes of a state. Um, so she agreed to do this report. Lots of people took it at face value and hoped that this would be an opportunity uh, to do it. She presented her report at the event one of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters um, stood up and uh, and accused one of the Labour MPs of being part of uh, a media conspiracy, which uh, seemed to be pretty blatant anti-Semitism uh, there uh, in, in front of us. And little or nothing was done about him uh, in the event. He was later, after some years, uh, expelled from the uh, from the Labour Party, thankfully. But it literally take years. And um, and the report had a number of. Uh, recommendations in it. Um, some of them have been enacted, some of them have not. Um, one of the things it did was basically say we should draw a line on everybody's past behaviour 
Um, some perceive that as a way of giving cover to Jeremy Corbyn's pre-leadership comments on um, uh, the various things that I kind of expressed uh, earlier and some of the platforms he has uh, shared uh, over the years, particularly through the Stop the War Coalition. Um, and, uh, and so that left some people feeling uh, pretty um, annoyed. Uh, there were some very positives out of it. Uh, I don't know if you have this in Australia. I didn't, I didn't come across it, thankfully. But Zio has become a kind of racist, racist epitaph that is used uh, uh, from people as a kind of shorthand for Zionists that is shouted at Jews um, uh, here. And the Labour Party came very clearly down on that that is, that is racism and we're not having understanding for that. And in theory, somebody should be kicked out of the party if they use that at Jewish people. There are a number of examples where that hasn't yet happened. But um, Actually, anyway, so this report comes down. It feels relatively inconclusive. And then two weeks later, um, Barrister Akrabati gets a peerage to so a life appointment to the House of Lords. And of course, that calls into question the whole nature of the report and why it was, why it was deemed to have pulled its punches in a number of places. Can I ask you a question about that? So I have found that interesting, certainly looking on Twitter, um, not a great place to go for trying to get some balanced opinion, but Twitter accounts in the UK, uh, up and down the country, when there is a debate about, um, you know, the Middle East or if there was conversations about, you know, what we're talking about today, um, sections of the left have used the term Zionism as a term of derision. Now, I come from the Labor Party tradition, which is the Labor Party tradition of Doc Evatt, who was uh, at one stage the leader of our great party, but also was the president of the United Nations General Assembly that guided through the plan to create Israel. Um, and I come from the state of Victoria, which has a strong Jewish community within both um, the, the, the suburbs of, um, of Melbourne, but also within our party itself. So Zionism and the term of Zionism for me has always been a positive term, a term of creating a uh, the state of Israel, a homeland for the Jewish people, and not just the state of Israel, but you think about it back in the days when Israel was first created, it was also quite, uh, it was a socialist paradise, really. Like it was, you know, the Labour Bund and the Labour Party and the history of all of the, the kibbutz movement. Zionism is a really positive thing about sort of a worker's paradise. Um, I've never s thought of that word to be used as a term of derision, but certainly looking on uh, social media these days, um, it is used as a term of derision and sometimes even try to equate to being some sort of far-right fascist uh, value frame to the extent that I actually had a conversation on Twitter with a, uh, a senior journalist for the Glasgow Herald who said to me that being anti-Zionist is not anti-Semitic, therefore you can disapprove of the State of Israel but not hate Jews. But the point I tried to say to him was I feel like it's coded now the term Zionism is now coded for Jews. It's just their way of getting away from saying Jews, but actually what they're doing is they're actually trashing on Jews without having to say that word and be seen to be anti-Semitic. What are your thoughts about this? Where, where has this come from? How is, is this something that's always been the case? Or has this just developed over the last sort of, uh, you know, five to ten years? No, I think it... Um, I think it well, maybe, maybe it's long been there. There, there was certainly a point in the student movement over... Uh, uh, the very the years before I was there, where there was a kind of move to kind of, you know, Zionism is therefore a form of nationalism, or nationalism is racism, racism therefore must mean you're a fascist, etc. And so there were times in which, uh, you know, the uh, this has this has been prominent in uh, left politics. It is now coming back and has become fashionable again. And partly, um, I think, as a prospect of a two-state solution, feels more and more bleak um you know the oslo 
uh, process coming to such a, a, a damning conclusion and the second intifada that followed, uh, and obviously the way that security had become the number one issue in Israeli politics, you know, my my visits to Israel and the West Bank just you know you come away thinking peace feels like it's a more distant prospect than a more uh, likely one. Mm. So I think that, that that is some of the context of which this has been able to come back up again. Um, of course, Israel gets the blame for some reason for being the reason why peace feels more bleak. Netanyahu is obviously not a force for peace. Um, it is fair to say, but. Um, you know, it, it's it's not it's not an easy uh, picture. So, some, I think that is on the background for it. But clearly, that is what is happening, and that is what has been happening in some of uh, the, particularly the one-state pro-Palestinian groups. Um, is that uh, this, this term clearly has kind of um, built up around us? And you know, I've taken some interest in these things for some time, but that I wasn't quite. Uh, of aware of how poisonous that had become. But suddenly the kind of water goes up uh, over our heads and people who hold that particular view feel they have cover in the current leadership and are using that openly. Now, Corbyn has spoken against um, uh, using Zio as an offensive term, for example, but has also been very strong on, there's this international definition on anti-Semitism, and he contested various points of it, particularly where they are in the interplay of where uh, critiquing Israel can and is uh, anti-Semitic. So it is, of course, completely fine to critique Israeli policy, um, uh, the, the nature of the state, how it operates, the occupation, potentially even the founding of the state itself. All those things are totally legitimate intellectual exercises uh, to go through. You just have to open a paper in Israel to see all of those things playing out on a daily basis. It's when you use um, anti-Semitic tropes with those analyses, or that somehow you're singling out Israel as the Jew amongst the nations, uh, that somehow it's, it, it plays to a different standard. That's where the anti-Semitism comes into it. So you see Nazi-style cartoons of the kind of controlling spider or octopus, controlling and planning the world in that kind of protocols of the Elder Zion way, you know, 50 years later, that is Netanyahu's face somehow controlling uh, world affairs and, and manipulating um, everything that is going on. You know, Netanyahu is not, a, <laughs> I would not vote for him in any way, shape or form. Uh, but that is just out and out anti-Semitism. You can completely find his nation state law, uh, the way he governs, the way he occupies, um, egregious. But that is not a critique of him as a leader or his policies. That is 1930s-style anti-Semitism used in a modern context, and that is not tolerable, and that should be called out as such. And too often, it is not. How do the Jewish community reconcile Jeremy Corbyn's past and in an attempt to work with him in his capacity as not just you know uh, a leader of a political party, but the leader of one of the two mainstream political parties in Britain's democracy. How do they reconcile his past and try and work with him to achieve uh, a common goal? Well, I'd like to think it's a common goal that they are that, that they can eradicate racism in all forms within British society. How are they going in that in that journey since two thousand and fifteen? Well, I can't speak for. Uh Jews or either collectively or individually. But if you look at what's currently happening, like I think Jeremy Corbyn got a reasonable amount of goodwill, actually, from quite a lot of Jewish people um, throughout his leadership. 
um, and in various ways. Um, and there was a kind of, if we can keep talking, maybe we can get through this. But the words have never turned into action. And I think my sense is that the trust, particularly from uh, the kind of Jewish communal organisations and uh, and those from that tradition, you know, I think it's 90, 93, 95 percent of British Jews would identify with Zionism in some way. Um, you know, that that part of the community, I think now has either lost its patience with him or losing it. And, you know, Labour brought out fig leaf stuff on educated members on anti-Semitism this weekend. And the Labour Jewish movement, you know, called it for what it is, which is too little, too late, with no real leadership behind it. You know, they, they, they're, they're kind of against anti-Semitism in general, but never in particular. You, know, you can't actually ever identify one of their supporters said anything that they would actually have enough of a problem with to call them up and say, whoa, that's a problem. You're like, I don't want you on my team anymore. That is, that is a conversation that never seems to have happened from him um, and his supporters. And so you know, the Jewish community called a rally in Parliament um, uh, in, I think it was 2017 now, mm. um, and saying enough is enough uh, when this mural um, came out and Corbyn had defended it. And, you know, the MPs who went out to support the Jewish community were vilified by uh, Mr. Corbyn's supporters and um, front benches were told they were not allowed to attend uh, and all this kind of stuff. So I think um, the community has um, uh, lost its patience. And now it is the Labour Jewish movement that is leading the complaint to the Commission for Equalities and Human Rights about their own party. So I think that says uh, quite a lot. Now, they're, they're are individual Jews who take a different opinion. There is a group for uh, uh, called, um, uh, what are they called? Um, uh, Jewish Voice for Labour that takes a very different uh, view. Um, but uh, I think overwhelmingly um, the community are, uh, have lost patience or are losing it uh, fast because there is a pattern that seems to be appearing. This Panorama program that we spoke of before um, spoke to a number of party officials who alleged that senior Labor figures, namely the uh, party's general secretary, Jenny Formby, and Corbyn's communication chief, Seamus Milne, had interfered uh, in the process of dealing with these anti-Semitism complaints. Um, and then we saw... I, I actually subscribed to the Labor Party emails and I saw that email that you just referenced before. Um, have uh, They sent out an email during the week in which Jeremy Corbyn put his name to it, saying that they were here to... Uh, there's no place for anti-Semitism in our movement. One of the things I did notice in the email was there was a qualification within the email when it went and talked about how um, we have to confront bigotry in all its forms. It said, whilst other political parties and some of the media have exaggerated and distorted the scale of the problem in our party, we must face up to the party that a small number of Labor members hold anti-Semitic views. Do you think that's a, an accurate reflection of the problem within the party? Is it a small number? I don't care what the numbers are. The problem it's not it's not how many people are anti-Semitic. It's that the people are who are anti-Semitic are too many in their number. They often say they do it in the leader's name. The leader never dissociates with them individually. He might collectively say, um, none of these people speak for me. But when they continue to go on to speak for him, like and one of the things I recommended three years ago was that he and momentum, you know, he gets five million pounds of 
funding for the opposition's office from the parliament, you know, spend a smidgen of that on a social media officer to run a Twitter account called Corbyn Against Hate. And every person that's got a Corbyn to PM hashtag or Twibbon or whatever saying they support him that is attacking Jewish MPs or Jewish members or saying anything, you know, tweet at them and say, you don't speak for me, delete my, your tweet or delete your Twibbon because I don't want your support if you're being racist, and they refuse to do simple things like that that would set, set and change the culture in the party, that would clean up that online uh, space. There's plenty of lay people who would refer these people to those accounts, uh, and they could take a positive role in changing that cultural uh, part of the party, but they absolutely um, refuse to. And you know, we have uh, uh, you know, Labour MPs who say absolutely egregious things, and they either take delayed before they get uh, suspended or they get let back in or they somehow have a different process. And it just looks like Labour is not taking the process seriously. And quite frankly, in an email about combating anti-Semitism, to say that you know, elites and other parties and people in the media are somehow exaggerating this is pretty much just raking up the mm. kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment, uh, you know, anti rich media owner, you know, all these things that essentially on parts of the left have become byword um, for Jews. These are just, you know, uh, outrageous. It, a senior member of Labour's National Executive Committee, very close to Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, they talk regularly in text exchange, etc. You know, they're very, very close uh, politically and have been for a very long time. In a meeting about dealing with anti-Semitism, uh, an open letter had come from Britain's uh, rabbis. It was quite a unique thing because it had both female and male rabbis on it, which for some male rabbis is a problem because they don't recognise uh, female rabbis. That was quite a remarkable thing. This guy stood up and said, you can't, list, you can't trust the word of rabbis because some of them in America supported Trump. And this, this just went on and momentum continues to support this person for uh, the national community. I'm very sure Jeremy Corbyn would have voted for this person to be on Labour's national executive committee. You know, he sat there in that meeting and did nothing and said nothing uh, while that was said uh, in and around him and essentially by his faction and in his name. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many anti-Semites there are in the problem. When they're on the National Executive Committee, when they're in the British Parliament, when they're working for the leader or the party structures, when they're obfuscating, um, you know, in the trade union movement, like the, the, the institutions of the party have people who side with the anti-Semite over Jews. And that is just abhorrent. Uh, Luciana Berger, who uh, was the Labor member in Liverpool, um, she left the party and is now um, standing as an independent MP. Um, she was essentially driven out of the party because of anti-Semitism. Um, she actually she quote, she, she quoted saying anti-Semitism is alive and well in the Labor Party that I'm in. Tell me about her experiences, both at a local level and what 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 what, what did she go through that was, for, which would have been a a shocking experience for someone, let alone, you know, just having to confront anti-Semitism, period, or any form of racism, but that for it to drive her out of the party that she joined as a young woman, a party that she obviously clearly loves and is something we all share as Labour people, for she then to physically get up and say, I have to leave this organisation um, because of the experiences that I'm going through. What, what did she go through that drove her out of the party? Luciana is one of the bravest people I have ever met. I was actually at university with Luciana. She was the first person to ever beat me in an election. 
in student politics and um, <laughs> I made a grave mistake uh, standing against her and I re regretted it every day since and since then we've been strong friends uh, and allies. You know, she had the most appalling experience um, by some of the people who uh, now support Jeremy Corbyn when she was in the student movement um, and uh, she's got, you know, she was a director of Labour Friends of Israel, one of the things she did before coming into Parliament um, and she has been a remarkable uh, MP and focusing, she, she ran a, uh, one of the best and leading uh, advocates against the use of food banks under austerity here. She's been a great campaigner for um, social and political equality. She actually got smoking banned in cars if there's a child present, you know, a really important change to the law. One of the few Labour MPs that's actually changed the law since 2010 here in the UK. So she is a formidable and brilliant campaigner. She was the president of the Labour Jewish movement and she was pilliard with abuse from the far right, but also the far left within Labour and uh, treated the most uh, despicable abuse in whether it's in her local party, where so many people would stand up and say um, egregious things uh, and racist things in meetings to online threats being made against while she was pregnant, her unborn child um, and horrendous uh, situations, which culminated in last year's uh, Labour Party conference, the police um, getting in touch to say they turned down uh, very many people from getting who'd applied to the party to want to come to the conference. Uh, they just said they weren't coming into the secure area, but the, there was so many in number that were problematic for the safety of uh, her or the Jewish people that she was provided um, with um, a police escort at Labour Party conference. Mm. And Mr Corbyn denied this was even happening when it was palpably true. Um, and uh, she literally had uh, police officers with her. It, this was her safety being put at risk um, by politics inside the Labour Party, you know, identified by the police that people who had applied to come to Labour Party conference, who believed they had some right or reason to be there, that they had turned away but they would probably be turning up for the fringe events that take place outside the Cordendoff area, and therefore her safety uh, needed to be paramount. And you know, that is just the most atrocious thing to have happened. And quite frankly, you know, she was a strong and articulate voice against this. Um, but many of her colleagues did not row in behind her. And she, on a number of occasions, would stand up at the parliamentary party meeting um, some of her colleagues would speak either in her defence or in solidarity. Um, but, you know, she stood up once and said, for those of you who text me privately, but don't say anything in these meetings to the leader or to your, you know, your local members, you are part of the problem. And you're not actually, you know, your, your secret text messages saying, oh, I respect you so much, actually don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting cowardly, hiding away, um, and, and not engaging in this in a public sense. So she has had the most awful treatment. And, you know, I regret, I think, as much as anybody or, or more than most, that she took the decision to leave the Labour Party. But I, I despite the fact I haven't uh, left myself for a variety of uh, reasons, I literally can find absolutely no reason to fault her uh, because, you know, she is a remarkable uh, woman and... I think she put down an important marker and you saw how you know, the leadership, when there was a sense of speculation that this was coming, uh, John McDonnell was um, asked to kind of uh, comment on this uh, and the answer she experienced. And he just basically said, well, all she needs to do is rule out that she might be leaving another party. And I just think that 
the pettiness that at, a po- at that point and that juncture in our history to somehow claim that Jews should show better loyalty rather than that we should all show more solidarity just pretty much said uh, how these people think about themselves and uh, and think about Jewish people in the past. It's, it's very worrying. Where is the union movement on, on all of this? It's a, the Labour Party in Australia and Britain are very, very similar in their structures and the union movement has a... Um, you know, is a powerful block within our parties. Where is the leadership within the union movement on, on this issue? Are they quiet or are they backing in Corbyn? Um, and I ask that question as a sort of a question to wrap up as well in the sense of where is, how do we get out of this? How do we find a way forward to try and fix this rotten mess? So the union movement is not homogenous. There are people that are part of the problem. Uh, there are people who say there is no problem. And there are those who are... Um, gallantly trying to uh, sort out the problem and uh, that myriad of opinions exist in the movement and uh, on the National Executive Committee those who are taking serious uh, the issue many of those derive from our trade union movement but equally those who seek to obfuscate are equally uh, as likely to be from that tradition so I'm afraid there is not a um, a simple um, pattern um, in, in the behaviour um, uh, from from our friends uh, in the union movement, um, and sadly, too often it seems to align with um, whether they initially nominated Jeremy Corbyn or not, uh, rather than uh, you know being able to take the issue on face value, which mm-hmm. is disappointing. I think for uh, those of us that have seen the great role the trade union movement have done in fighting for equality uh, in the past, but there are some brilliant trade unionists out there and those in leadership positions who do try and make the situation better every day. Look, this, the, the way out of it is difficult because it is um, an entrenched position. You know, the Labour Party won't share with its own National Executive Committee the response it has given into the Commission for Racial Equality, uh, sorry, the, the Commission for Equality and Human Rights, as it's now called. Um, and uh, so, if, and the party is now attacking the whistleblowers, exposing the kind of institutional behaviour that's going on. I mean, I, I have lost faith that Jeremy Corbyn is prepared to do what it takes to sort this um, uh, situation out. And uh, I think many others uh, have too. But it is important nonetheless that we mark out what a party would look like if it did take anti-Semitism seriously, um, provide the party with clear choices. So if it were minded to, it could take those options. Um, But we must also support the Jewish people who are coming forward with their strong and compelling testimonies about how they've been treated uh, in meetings, uh, online, um, in their engagement with the Labour Party, um, and that when Anderson raises ugly head, it is at least uh, documented, witnessed by others, and there is a testimony to ha- what can happen when you have a leadership that for too long has turned a blind eye and now is reluctantly trying to do just enough to get it through the next crisis media story rather than actually sort out the situation. And I fear that the reality is that um, only a change of leadership will do that. But a change of leadership, I don't believe, uh, will come until after Labour has fought uh, another general election, of which there is a prospect that Jeremy Corbyn might become our prime minister. Uh, I think most likely the British public won't vote for somebody who doesn't take racism seriously. I don't think there's very many votes in ignoring anti-Semitism. I actually think we will lose votes in ignoring anti-Semitism. And with that, we've lost whole councils um, uh, because of it uh, here in the UK. And sadly, I think the 
the British public will be the only people that can deliver a message on anti-Semitism to Jeremy Corbyn that he finally takes seriously. Well, in some ways, and I'm trying to end on a positive note here, but maybe that's something that can be, uh, that is something that we can take from it, that is hopefully that our liberal democracy uh, can, in the end, uh, prove uh, a great institution and hopefully resolve this problem once and for all. Uh, which seems strange to think that the external factors could influence the internal changes within the, within the Labor Party, but um, if that's what has to happen, then I think that probably will be a great thing. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come onto the podcast today and speak to us about this really complex and quite depressing uh, topic, but I think it's just worth uh, our Australian listeners uh, hearing about it because some of them may be following in the media a little bit, but I don't think that Australian Labor Party uh, supporters, whether they be a member of the party or just a, a supporter of the Labor Party in Australia, would realise the extent and the, the deep divisions and problem that is anti-Semitism in the Labor Party in the UK. And I really appreciate you coming on and actually breaking it down for us over the, over the last uh, uh, 50 minutes. We're inter- terribly grateful for well, that. Um, and we sh- Well, thank you for having me and thank you for doing this work because it's important that social democracy has this platform to talk about where it is, where it's going, what the risks are, whether they're to our right or to our left in the party or, or, or in wider society. Uh, but I, I would just add one thing that was very sad about my time in Australia was when talking about this stuff, many people there just didn't believe that this was the reality in the British Labour Party because in so many ways it is unbelievable that a party that founded the commission for Equality and Human Rights could now find itself investigated by the Commission for Equality and Human Rights. But the reality is, just look at the experiences of Jewish people and their testimonies, whether it's Luciana leaving the party or the new uh, chair of the Labour Jewish movement, Ruth Smead, uh, the experiences she has had as a, a Jewish member of parliament, or, or those young people that appeared on the Panorama programme that talked about how awful it had been for them to go to some of their meetings and how some of them had withdrawn from either the party structures or participating in some way. This is a real reality for not all Jews, but for a significant number of Jewish people in our party. And until it is rooted out, we will continue to be in that way. And the reality is, is the Australian Labour Party is normally either 10 years ahead of us or 10 years behind. You know, you had uh, Hawke Keating um, and it took us a bit, a bit longer before we got uh, Blair and Brown um, and... Uh, you know, but sometimes we, we do things first and, and you then follow. Um, I think people should be, whether they're in the left or the right faction uh, in uh, in Australia, be very vigilant that some of the tenants of this could be coming your way. I certainly hope that is not the case. <laughs> in, uh, I hope so too. Absolutely. I hope so too. Um, best of luck with uh, your future endeavours. I know you finished up as the uh, the director or the chair of uh, Progress, a really good uh, institution within the Labor Party that uh, is constantly seeking uh, to come up with great uh, ideas, uh, uh, both pr- progressive and radical, to improve social democracies. Um, and I wish you, wish you with the best of luck with whatever endeavours you uh, undertake in the future. And we hope to have you back on the podcast to talk about uh, better circumstances. Uh, that cheerier notes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Until then, best of luck, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Cheers, all the best. Thank you.